Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we highlight the personal journeys of thought leaders through adversity and trauma to find resilience and hope. As many of you know, we're all volunteers at Voices of Resilience. I'm, I'm not a broadcaster or a mental health professional. I run one of the nation's leading marketing agencies called The Shipyard. But in the first weeks of the pandemic, my colleagues at the agency, plus my wife, Karen, and the leadership of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health for the Ohio State University, especially its chairman, Dr. Luan Fon, all got together and discussed that this pandemic is not just a physical health challenge, it's a mental health challenge. And we wanted to open up. We wanted to destigmatize the conversation on mental health. And we started by just talking to folks we admire and we knew had navigated great adversity, who, who became leaders and advocates for mental health challenges. Well, this is now our 15th episode. And just last week, Adweek named us the nation's best podcast launched during a pandemic. Uh, we're blown away by this. We're so grateful to all of you who have followed us and supported us. So thank you so much. And I can't think of a better example of a leader that understands adversity than our guest today. On this week of Veterans Day, we have the president of the National Veterans Memorial and Museum, three-star Lieutenant General Michael Farader. He served 35 years commanding soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, international forces at every level. He's participated in numerous overseas operations in Somalia and Iraq. He's parachuted with paratroopers and rangers more than 200 times. And he's served as the lead conduit with the Iraqi government. Lieutenant General, thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to join you today. And, and thanks for uh, you pulling this together and providing a very impactful and important series for all of your listeners out there. Thanks. That's very nice. You know, I think I want to start talking about the National Veterans Memorial Museum. Uh, what is that? What's that about? And tell us a little. Well, the, the National Veterans Memorial Museum is right here in Columbus, Ohio, and we've been open for two years and a week. And in the summer of 2018, I was in Columbus, Columbus, Georgia, and I got a phone call and they asked if I wanted to be the founding CEO of the new National Veterans Memorial and Museum. And I said, well, where is it? And they said, it's in Columbus. And I said, well, I'm in Columbus. I don't see it. <laughs> and they said, no, Columbus, Ohio. So I came here and uh, I saw this iconic and uh, I, uh, you know, just eye-watering, you know, uh, beautiful architecture. And they walked me through um, the museum and, uh, and I found out that this was the brainchild of the late great Senator John Glenn, who was a Marine veteran and astronaut and, and a great senator, and most of all, a, an amazing leader. And then the real titans of, of industry and of the community uh, pulled together to have the national uh, a tribute to veterans. Now they took down an old veterans facility that I never saw, a memorial, and, and, uh, and eventually got the buy-in of those that really loved their memories from that place uh, to help 
put this together. Now inside there's, we tell the story of the journey of all veterans. So there are these alcoves with videos in them. Each one is a, a four feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. And we took 25 uh, veterans from an original group of about uh, 250. And they tell the compelling story that any one of us, the journey that we walked uh, to include a nation called and then why I served and then leaving home and taking the oath of office and basic training and first deployments and camp life and letters to home and then coming home and then those of the fallen, uh, families of the fallen and then transitioning back into our communities. And uh, so this is a very, very impactful place. And, uh, and it also has our nation's history from 1775 on a timeline. And that's really for our K through 12 education program, which is, which is thriving right now um, and, and building out to be on Zoom as well. And so that, that those tell the significant historical events of our country and people who made an impact. And they're not all generals. And they're not all presidents, but they're actually corporals and lance corporals and airmen and, and uh, you know, young Navy uh, sailors and all. I feel like the museum is kind of a curator of resilience. You have so many stories, don't you? You know, every, every day we have uh, the following kind of things happen. Someone will say, it'll be a mom with a child, with a granddad, and the granddad will be walking through here and he starts telling stories to the grandson. And the mom will turn around and look at me and say, he's never told anyone that. And, or uh, we'll have someone else write us and say, my brother came through there and he was kind of messed up, you know, and he's doing much, much better. Or we have groups of, of veterans, you know, the 82nd Airborne Association group from Ohio or something, they'll come through and you can see them processing and, and shucking and jiving, and then all of a sudden they kind of move away. They kind of scatter for a little bit to process all the things that the memories come to them. I, I, I met a guy a week before opening, and he was walking around the museum, and he wasn't supposed to be in here. And I said, "Hey, can you tell me? Where, can I help you?" And he said, "No, I'm fine." And I stopped him again. I said, "Sir, may I help you?" And he said, "No." And I said, "Well, uh, do you know where you're going?" He said, "Yeah, I know. I built this place." And I said, oh, my goodness. And I said, well, what were you trying to achieve? And he said, ethical space. And uh, I think that says a lot about what happens when people come in here. What do you think that means, ethical space? Well, I, I, think, it, I think it's unquestioned. I don't think it, I don't think it, you know, I, I like to say we don't lean left or right. We lean into it. We lean into the problem. And that's what soldiers do and, and military members. You know, when told to go, they go. Soldiers lean into a problem. Is that just because I'm told to go, I go, or that's instinctive? One of the things that uh, we're fond of saying is, you know, we as military members swear an oath to the Constitution. And so, you know, for all the listeners out there, as ballots are being counted, you have no worry about where the military is on any of this. You know, they're for America and for our Constitution. But they fight for each other. As they come through basic training, they go from the I and the me to the we. And then when they're in Iraq or Afghanistan or, um, or preparing to go somewhere, they don't even know what the name of it is yet. They're thinking, I will never leave a fallen comrade. You know, I will accomplish the mission. I'll never embarrass my country. And so 
It's for the person on their left and right. It's for the pride of uh, those that went before them. And, uh, and it's to stand between you and trouble. What do you feel when you say that? Is it stress? Pride? Does it give you energy? Oh, sure. Uh, there's no stress. It's pride. It's knowing that, and Ronald Reagan said in one speech, you know, some people go their whole life not knowing whether or not they accomplish something. And these men and women know that every day they've accomplished something. That's what drives you, isn't it? And that's what drives the people around you, the sense of purpose. It is. And it's, it's to make, make things better, um, to find a way to help. If you can, then you should find a way to help someone and um, leave things better than the way you found them. Your whole family was in the military. Is that right? Your parents, I think your grandparents, your. Uh, my, my father, my father uh, joined the army as a private in World War II, went to the officer candidate school and uh, served 27 years and retired as a colonel. My wife's father, Margie's dad is West Point class of 51. Um, and then from then, you know, I served in the army. My brother was drafted and served for a brief period in Vietnam. Both my sons and my daughter served in the army. Dan's a lieutenant colonel and Patty's a major. And Mary Whitney is uh, returning to service after having three kids and now she's going back in. Four of my nephews, three of my nieces. But I, I would tell you, Rick, that um, it's family business, but so, so are teachers and so are lawyers and so are firemen and so are doctors and nurses. So are, you know, still workers. I think the key is children find that their parents get to hang with men and women of character who kind of like each other and are doing something noble or important. And, and that attract, that's what makes family business happen in this country. And it rarely is it because someone told you you have to do it. Let me go back to the museum being a place where we catalog resilience. Any particular stories that now you've been exposed to that really strike you, that really power you, stories of resilience? There are many, 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 and they can be big and small. So let me describe a small one. Immediately after opening, I told our team, we're going to do a thing called Rally Point. Now, in the military and, and for the ground forces in particular, if you're on a patrol and you get hit and you get scattered out, you go back to the Rally Point and regroup, consolidate, reorganize drive on towards your mission. And so the phrase rally point to veterans in the community means it's a place I can go and recollect and get reconnected. So we started our program and basically I set out a brunch for whoever wants to come for free and allow people to mix and speak and then address contemporary issues. So this is part of this strength and resiliency platform. And over a period of, of our you know 25 months now, we've done 20 rally points. What we know for sure is when veterans are connected with others and they have purpose, then we see an amazing diminishing of suicide. So one of the things that we do is if we make sure they're connected. And then we bring in programming for Rally Point. We've had the Department of Labor. We've had the VA here to talk about navigating and Franklin County Veteran Services to help people understand how they can get to their benefits. We did a hiring fair with Top Golf as well. One of the guys, a gentleman named Scott, showed up in, I think, the first or second rally point. He now is very active in the museum, but he has told us I was in a very dark place. I had many nights where I thought I was going to take my life. 
and you have you have saved me and my family and i appreciate it so that's a first touch from us we also have amazing people like jennifer laredo blue whose husband eddie staff sergeant eddie blue was killed in combat in afghanistan and she was a first sergeant of a medical company and was on scene when he passed away now she teaches resiliency classes and, and life classes and she's amazing and and so from simply helping out someone who wanted to just sit in on a rally point to bring in her message to thousands more than seven thousand people have heard her message through our online platforms and, and and there's everything in between i love that concept so you're saying rally point is something every member of the military understands and you brought it to civilian life mm-hmm. and basically said your whole life you're going to need a rally point and you're creating that for them right and and um you know we brought in five women who were veterans and transitioned back into civilian world and in, uh, back into our community life after military and and they got to tell the story of you know most military members when they leave service feel like they've jumped out of an airplane with no parachute all of the structure all of the comradeship uh, all, all of the purpose all of the self-identity and self-esteem it's kind of a big cloud and so i think when we as as the museum as this platform um tell people you're not alone everyone's doing that of course so now let's you know as a good sergeant major says sergeant major O'Reilly says you know you cannot roll up your sleeves if you're wringing your hands and so then that encouragement to take the next step is the kind of thing that uh, we think impacts lives and that's what we're here to do to tell the stories to connect america to veterans and in this idea of selfless service but also to impact lives it's not just to admire the problem not just admire that there's issues let's do something about it it sounds to me like the major stress and the most vulnerable time for mental health is when someone from the military especially someone in a military career leaves the military, joins civilian life. You know, one of the things, Rick, that's not allowed here in the, in the National Veterans Memorial Museum is, is any dreariness or pity. And so I view life and try to lead that, of course, this is a challenge, but they've been to challenges. And so now let's, let's identify the next purposeful action and, and let's get after it. And uh, in Columbus, Ohio, but across the nation, Corporations have veteran employment resource groups and our veteran resource groups and, and all this stuff. And, and I think in the last four years, more than I've seen, they're really coming to life. And so it's easy for us to take someone and connect them to the Huntington Bank VRG or the Nationwide VRG or, um, you know, you name it. And and uh, and they can find a way with people um, who, who kind of speak common languages, you know, Chemical Abstracts in Town has a great one as well. And that helps them quite a bit. I think that's important. I think communication is is important in that regard and letting them visualize what next they can do that's bigger than themselves. Well, I certainly understand you don't want to talk about pity. But when you have a culture in which you don't want to talk about your woes, do you sometimes have a challenge talking about mental health issues at all? Yeah, so let's separate those two ideas. I think 
open communication. You know, we ran the, I ran in the army a program called the Ready and Resilience Program. And I ran that with my battle buddy, Patty Hora, a Lieutenant General female surgeon general. And I talked to her and I said, yeah, we got to talk about taste great as well as less filling. And so there are some that need to be medicated and there are some that need serious medical help, psychological help. But there are others that just need to be playing intramurals and running and, and after uh, work activities and great, great family time and all that. So trying to pull everyone back into the Army Strong, which was the model, you know, let's make them Army Strong again, rather than be accepting of the fact that they're challenged. So you have to have open combo. You have to not have the stigma. And so today at the brigade and regimental level, you'll find mental health specialists and people can go and, and talk to them like they never could 10 years ago. And I think that's a, a healthy way to address and then resolve many of the issues that are so challenging for um, our military members and, and our veterans. What do you mean like they never could 10 years ago? I retired six years ago. So prior to this war, or even prior to 2008, I'd say, if you had to go see a mental health person, you wouldn't want it in your medical record. It would cause you probably not to get promoted. And, uh, you know, you remember the scene from Patton when he, he slaps a soldier right. who clearly has what we call PTSD. You know, that the attitude of it is a weakness rather than, you know, it's a symptom of an injury. You know, that's only in these last 10 to 15 years where now we say, hey, we've invested so much in this great young man or woman. Let's get them healthy. But, you know, not, not only do we care that we don't want them to hurt themselves, but we, gosh, he's a good machine gun or he's a good tank he drives a tank well or he's a great officer who does the following and so there's that recognition if you break a leg on on a parachute jump you heal up and return to the unit so if you break down in a different way i believe strongly i think our military has come a long way to saying yeah we can we can resolve this and get this guy back on the line so you think this is a big improvement this acceptance of people's vulnerabilities i do yeah i really do in fact here's a great example I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm not, a, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying I mm -hmm. started Army Combatives um, when I was asked to uh, reinvigorate the fitness of the U.S. Army. And a new thing called the, the Ultimate Fighting Championship was just beginning in 96. Well, anyways, fast forward 10 years later and, and I was present when they were promoting one of their students to black belt. And he said, I came in here you know, 12 years ago and started and when I was being taught to defend myself, at that moment in my life, I said, why should I defend myself? I'm not worth defending. And that's the place where suicide lives. And they brought him all the way along to, you know, a, a magnificent uh, professor admired by, you know, hundreds of students of his. And, but he had, to, he came back from that journey because he could see himself as, he could see self-worth, he could see his impact in lives, and he could see that that uh, it was worth it. And, and that's what we have to do in all of these resiliency programs is find them, connect them to something, and then allow them to survive and then thrive. Well said. And what she said is, I don't know that I know myself. And that's what I'm wondering as you move from military to civilian life. Do you see that often happens? Yeah, I would say so. I don't think it's, you know, chronic or, you know, every, everyone copes. 
uh, with things in different ways. So I'm just saying, hey, it's a new challenge. I'm going to put a coat and tie on. I'm going to work on my resume. And I'm going to interview until I find what, I, what works for me and, and my family. There's a book called Set Up for Success that I assisted an Army Ranger and a Navy SEAL write. And the theme of that book is your whole time in the military, you were set up for success. And so there's a cookbook or a ranger handbook on how to operate in the military. And then when you leave, there's not that cookbook. And I believe when they're, once again, connected to others, you say, yeah, I've done that. I'm, I'm seven months ahead of you and uh, we can do that. And then others don't get that connection, don't find that, or are just ones who relied on the assistance of those who are uh, professionally responsible for developing, that they get they get lost in the mix. And those are the ones that are, are vulnerable, uh, vulnerable ones, Rick. What was it like for you when you retired? You know, I'm, I'm easily amused. So yeah, I always think of things in, in terms of, like I still wait for the Yankees to call to see if they need a second baseman. <laughs> that didn't happen. And I, find, I got my phone right here. You know, and so you think, well, gosh, I had so much more to give to the Army. You know, I'm a three-star. I know I could do that four-star job and that one. But I would tell you that probably it's smart and safe to say that the Lord is your assignment officer, not someone in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and he's got some other purpose for you. And to that end, Margie and I, my wife of 41 years and, and uh, best friend of 44, we did not encumber ourselves by signing up in a big defense corporation. But instead, we knew that something would come along where we could really make a difference. And then May 18, 2018, the phone rings and some woman says, would you be interested in this job? So in the meantime, what was it like? I started the Ferret Group. We started giving uh, hands-on inspired leadership seminars to wounded warriors, to C-suite executives, and to high schoolers and college kids. And so that, that was the way that I sought out the purpose that we've talked about. I got to do something. So I'm going to keep going and keep going until I find what it is, is really the next thing that I should be doing. So you've dedicated your life to helping veterans. And I think you told me, especially families of fallen veterans, right? That's correct. Tell me a little about that. Well, you lose soldiers along the way. I was pretty successful in not losing any of my soldiers for most of my career. But suddenly some wonderful spouse with kids or without kids, life is completely changed at the loss of their service member. So later on in my last assignment, one of the things that fell underneath me was called Survivor Outreach Services, SOS. And in that regard, when the chaplain and an officer show up with one of the women of the, uh, of the unit to be the casualty notification, then what quickly follows is Survivor Outreach Services the casualty assistance officer and the services that follow. We sat on the chief of staff of the Army's board to keep him informed on, on these matters. And so we learned a lot. That's where we met Jennifer Blue, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually went out to uh, Fox Sports. I, you know, I, at one point, a woman had a horrible incident came to Margaret and said, I was in a parking lot and I have a gold star on my bumper, which is a symbol of a fallen military member. Mm -hmm. And someone said to this woman, you must be a good mom because they gave you a gold star, you know, like kindergarten. And she said, I was horrified. And this woman was, I had to tell the woman, no, that's because my son Jimmy was killed in Afghanistan. And America doesn't realize these symbols. And that's part of our mission here at the NVMM 
is to educate America about veterans and about military service and all and connect America to veterans and veterans to America. So I said, upon hearing this, hey, who's got the Super Bowl next? And they said, Fox Sports. And I said, let's go to Fox Sports and put together PSAs about our Gold Star families. And um, they said, that's gonna cost a million dollars a minute. And I said, no, they're gonna do it for free. And so off we went, I met with Eric Shanks, who's the CEO of Fox Sports. And he agreed in 15 minutes to play them during the Super Bowl. And even today on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2, you'll see these PSAs. To the Gold Star families, they realize someone still cares about them. And then there are foundations like the Patriot Foundation at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I sit on their, I guess, honorary board, represent them, and it's all pro bono. But they wrap their arms around and we give scholarships to the kids of the fallen. What about emotionally? What is it like for a family? As I mentioned, everyone grieves differently. October 29th of 92, my battalion commander and another battalion commander were killed in a helicopter crash in the Great Salt Lake. I was supposed to be on a helicopter and uh, the mission changed and I rigged a parachute off of, out of a C-130 instead. But we saw his dear wife just fall, fall to pieces. And, and then, you know, no matter how, we all know we have to take them through the entire grieving process to get them to be able to uh, survive and then to thrive. Those were colleagues of yours, friends of yours. Dear friends, there's pictures on the wall behind me. You were able to quote the actual date, probably time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You never forget. Mm -hmm. And so you want to always honor the past or, or remain in love with the person that you lost and then you keep going and make the most of everything you can in your life. You know, General, you've been in leadership so long. You just told a story, remembering the date, losing your friends. You do so much to help others. Who helps you? What helps you? Well, I think my relationship with the Lord helps. Um, my relationship with Margaret helps. I try to be the very best boss that anyone ever had, and uh, that helps, right? And empowering you know my guys I, I love it here brick because we're a startup and so just about everything is new we have a couple of repeats now that we're in our second year or through our second year i love to say they'll say how do you want to do this and i'll say invent it you tell me how do you want to do it invent it and then evolve it and then make it better and then make it better still your resilience is built on serving others isn't it this morning we had 40 uh, veterans come in from a, a vet's home with their spouses and, and they've been upstairs social distancing and masks and clean and everything. this, but man, they're, they're loving what they're seeing up there. And uh, we give every Vietnam veteran a welcome home certificate because most of them never got welcomed home and they cry and they take pictures with everybody. So seeing that makes everything really joyful. What do you mean by that? Most of them never got welcomed home. Yeah, you recall, but let's say many of your listeners may not know that as 1968 through 73-ish, first of all, the military ran on a program for the most part called individual replacement. So you would be at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and you'd be sent into Vietnam, and then Vietnam would say, hey, I want you to get on this truck, you're going up to this unit. 
So you really didn't know the unit. You didn't train up. You didn't grow up with them. You would serve 365 days, and then you would get on a plane and come home. And we have a couple of uh, testimonials upstairs in the videos where men like John Flynn said, I came home and someone called me a baby killer and I was in uniform. I went in the bathroom, took it off and put on my civvies. And that was my welcome home. A lot of our army units in particular over the last 15 years have had welcome home ceremonies in their locales at their army bases. But we do it here just to make sure they get a, a pin that says, thank you for your service from the Department of Defense and then also um, a certificate. But they really appreciate the fact that someone knows and understands and can see through their eyes that it was difficult to come back. Now today, the military um, does unit replacement. So battalions and brigades that live together, train together, prepare for combat, deploy together and come home together and then have um, periods of uh, transitioning, you know, probably a month um, in, in, of getting used to being back, getting back in your, your household to take, to recondition them. Um, so that, those are affirmative steps taken uh, so that we didn't have the issues that the Vietnam vets had. Yes, what an interesting concept. Sounds like it'd be harder to find a rallying point you trust in individual replacement as opposed to unit replacement. You know, you talked about leadership and you uh, advise on leadership. What makes a great leader? First of all, do what's right. Secondly, do your best. Don't try to be the best. Just do your best. Do what's right. Be true to your spouse. Leave everyone else. Everyone chuckles. But if you're going to ask them to charge a machine gun nest, they better know that that when you say something, it's truthful and it's genuine and it's from integrity. They don't care what you know till they know that you care. So it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much rank you have. Build teams and then never, never, never quit. Demonstrate inspired leadership. And then building teams. You know, I think, Rick, you're building team right now. And there are all those out there know that they can come here to this rally point and listen to these podcasts and something you said or I said spoke right to their heart and, and now they're on the team and they know that they can reach out to us and we'll help. So that, so the person who gets up every day and says, what's the most important thing that I can do for my team and who's the person that I need to talk to today that they know that I appreciate. I think those are the attributes of a great leader. We're at a time of a lot of stress in our country and I can tell you're a studier of our country. You started by talking about that. You said, people, don't worry about where the military stands. We're with you. But do you have hope for our country? Yeah, of course. I believe the American people are going to find somewhere in the middle between this left and right stuff, and we're going to be okay. Things aren't perfect, so let's fix it. There's inequality, inequity. If those are two of the legs of a stool, Rick, then the third is misunderstanding. And so we're doing an Inspired Youth Fellowship Summit here at the NVMM, and we're going to have teens and veterans and police and firemen talking about these contemporary issues after the new year. And because when there's understanding, then there's solutions. I really like that. You know, third leg of the stool on these issues is misunderstanding. And boy, uh, it sounds like you and I are aligned on this. The biggest issue we have today is it seems like nobody wants to actually talk about the problem. 
whatever that problem is, you know, everybody wants to spout their, their point of view. Well, we say that, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. And uh, so everyone wants to talk about it, but no one wants to listen to the other side. Anything else you want to tell me today? Um, I want to do a shout out for the Veteran Golfers Association. We have 8,000 golfers in it from every state running a FedEx Cup-like series. Uh, so your listeners can go to Veteran Golfers Association or VGA if you Google it. 8,000 golfers over six years, no suicides. Um, it is awesome. And uh, Josh Payton, who served with my son Dan in Iraq, um, Josh is the president and CEO. He's been on our Veteran Voices talking about that. I want to uh, just ask everyone to go to nationalvmm.org or Google the, the National Veterans Memorial Museum. And I'll be honest with you, shamelessly, we are uh, officially at the, the National uh, Memorial and Museum for Veterans, but we don't get any federal money. So join us as a member. Uh, see our podcasts as well. Um, find a way to get involved with us. And uh, we're, we're beginning online uh, virtual field trips. We'll do the first three in December. So we'll bring the museum to kids around the country since they can't get on that beautiful yellow bus and come to us. And so we are open, we are strong, we are connecting, and we are impacting lives. And it's a pleasure to have been with you today, Rick. And I look forward to meeting you in person very soon. That was terrific, too. And I look forward to meeting you, Lieutenant General Michael Farader. It's an inspiration to talk with you. And I want to thank you for your service. And through you, thank you to the thousands, the millions of veterans that have served our country. A country that, like we talked about, we can't take for granted. A country that must be defended. So thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a real pleasure. I look forward to seeing you soon. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk with the Lieutenant General, especially this week on Veterans Day. As he said, to learn more about the National Veterans Memorial and Museum, visit nationalvmm.org. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers at the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to our whole series, visit us at voicesofresiliencepodcast.com or on Spotify, Google, and Apple Play. Many thanks to our award-winning team, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, and my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.